Welcome to the show, everyone. This is produced by Stakeholder-Centered Coaching, where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Today's episode is another installment in the series Conversations with Coaches, where our top coaches share their behind-the-scenes unfoldings of their career. The goal of this series is to give you an intimate peek behind the curtain so that you can see some of the messy ingredients that go into building a successful coaching career, as well as the rewards that come at the end of the tunnel for those who are willing to put in the effort. I'm your host, Brandon Murgard, and if you would like to send us a question or recommend a guest, send me an email at podcast at mgscc.net. Now, my guest today is someone I've been very eager to sit down with for, for quite some time. Uh, he's been a master coach with Stakeholder Center Coaching for a decade. He's been coaching clients ranging from Fortune 500 C-suite executives all the way over to family-owned businesses. And he's got uh, what I would say is quite an interesting career lead-in to coaching, uh, which you know we will explore more today. So, ladies and gentlemen, my guest, please welcome Mike McCartney. Thank you, Mike, for being on the show. Brandon, thanks for having me. I'm excited uh, to be a part of this community. Anything I can do to contribute, I'm learning from it all the time, and it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you so much, Mike. And you know, um, I'm I'm grateful that we finally get to do this. Uh, it's been a long time coming, and I've seen, I've been watching some of your work. You know, I've watched some of the demonstration videos that you have in our e-learning where you're showing some coaching skills with Frank Wagner. Um, and I've been enjoying uh, some of the techniques that you've introduced, uh, such as how you conduct AARs using the gold method, amongst other things. Um, and because I work so closely with co-founder Frank Wagner, I get to hear the names of people he deeply admires. And as you can imagine, your name frequently comes up with enthusiasm. So after all these years, uh, I feel like I already know you, and I'm glad we finally get to sit down and have a conversation together. Yeah, likewise, same for me with you. Uh, I've known of you for quite a while, and, and Frank and Chris just think the world of you. Yeah, so I'm glad to be here. Good. Well, uh, the the topic of this season of Conversation with Coaches is uh, the careers of how our some of our top coaches and how those careers were developed. So uh, I'm going to start off because not everyone knows this uh, about you, and I'm eager to hear more. Um, but before becoming an executive coach, you had quite the, uh, the proverbial wild ride, uh, so to speak, as a professional athlete. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about why uh, coaching isn't so much your first rodeo. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So, um, Brandon, you're talking about the sport of rodeo, right? Professional rodeo. And I did. I grew up on a on a small farm and uh, rode horses all my life, but just wanted to ride something that bucked. I love that. And um, through high school, college, uh, then through the in the amateur ranks, competed in in the um, in the saddle bronc riding and in the bull riding, and I loved it. And uh, then eventually went to the pro circuit. And if I could have convinced my wife that was living, we'd probably be chasing one today. But she wanted a home and a permanent address, not an itinerant. So uh, we settled down a little bit and the kids started coming. Yeah. So, um, but I, I love that part of my background. And I do, I draw from it all the time in my practice. 
That's a, it's amazing. So what was that, what was that like to wake up in the morning and just think, you know, I'm a professional rodeo athlete. This is what I do. Well, I, uh, where I live in Ohio, it, it, it's a bit of an anomaly. While there are some rodeo cowboys around in Ohio, not a lot of them. In fact, people would often think or ask me, geez, you're from Ohio. How'd you ever start rodeoing? You know, it's like, well, there are people, they play hockey in more places in Canada. You got to remind people of that, right? We play it all over the country. Same with us with rodeo. But um, people... It, it people remember me that way, so I, I'm grateful for it. It's a part of my identity. I loved it. Uh, there's just so much to be extrapolated from the the, the metaphor of a cowboy, right? It, it's an icon, and it, it, in the coaching world and the entrepreneurial world, it's rugged individualism. Even though we do a lot of teamwork, it's still yeah. So. I could, I could talk for a long time on that. I'll just try to bridle my enthusiasm for the identity. Well, I think it's definitely worth um, worth going into. And I, I think it's also, I'm confident to say that, you know, working with uh, executives on their leadership ability um, is a, a different sort of rodeo, I guess you could say. Um, but where do you see the overlaps between riding bulls and uh, leading businesses? Well, yeah, there's many, and it might sound trite, but 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 I'll I could boil it down to first of all, um, it, it's just there, there's some self confidence you have to have, right? You have to believe in, in in some of the basics, just that you can do this, and sometimes to know that you might have to try to do something that you don't even know if you can do it, but you just you push yourself into it, right? And you just gotta take that first step you you gotta you gotta just believe hey i prepared for this i'm probably better than i think in some cases so as we say cowboy up when you're when you're actually you know i've never been face to face with the kind of the kind of beast that you must be with a rodeo um what is the first step to writing a writing a bowl or or being a professional rodeo athlete? well one of, one of the techniques or the i think the parallels here is that um it's way more technical than would meet the eye, just like with coaching, just like with running a business. Uh, I could say I, I can argue it both ways that riding bulls or Bronx is just you make a face like you're in pain and hang on for eight seconds. But when you drill down, there's a lot of details. And that's why it takes years to learn how to really do it well. And there are schools and skills that you try to learn by just practice, practice, practice. So it is with leadership, right? Leadership is all about following, doing some of the right behaviors and just practicing them, practicing them. So it is with riding bulls. But I think it's got, you got to have some self-confidence and, and you have to know the basics. You got to just drill those basics in. So like Marshall would say, ha has perpetuated in our SCC circle, you, you got to have humility, discipline. Yeah, especially. Um, I can see that. I'm not sure that, uh, well, I mean, I can say for certain, I don't think I would be, be cut out. For I, I, I the forgot pole. the courage part. There's a little bit of courage in there too. <laughs> Probably the most important one, if you're coming face to face with an animal like that. Um, and you mentioned it's very technical. So we, we, I mean, Boy, as coaches, do we know that that many leaders think you can just muscle your way through this? Uh, that was always my perception 
of, of writing a bull and excuse my ignorance, but it doesn't seem like you can just hop on and squeeze the reins as tight as you can. There's a lot of nuance that goes into it. Well, you're right. It's, and so today there's, there's rodeo schools all across the country where anybody who was interested to learn the basics, you go just like we have to become a stakeholder centered coach. You might have an appetite, even a penchant, uh, uh, an aptitude for coaching, but that you gotta, gotta, you have to learn how to do it. And that's what I learned in stakeholder centered coaching. I go back to my earliest days when I was rodeoing. I thought I knew how to ride bulls and broncs. I was a good athlete. I'd grown up riding horses, but I went to my first school and I found out how much I did not know about how to ride correctly and how to stay safe in one piece. So I learned a lot of basics. And I just practice, practice, practice. Would you say that that's quite similar in the engagements that you've had as a master coach, that you meet with leaders who think, you know, I've got most of this figured out. They sit down to learn some of the real techniques of being a leader and then realize, wow, I'm, I'm actually much less equipped than I initially thought I was. Do you see that happening often with the clients you oh, work yeah. with? That's a good parallel. In fact, I, I know I thought I was a good coach before I went to stakeholder-centered coaching. I thought I was good with people. I thought I had insight. Uh, I was pretty introspective. Uh, I thought I had good EQ skills. And then I started learning stakeholder-centered coaching and I got humbled real quickly, right? I just realized, oh, there is way more to this than meets the eye. It's not just about um, connecting with people. How, yeah, so I, I just had to really get humble and focus on learning instead of just relying on what I thought was some natural ability with people. Well, that's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm, learning, I'm learning more about rodeo right now than I've probably learned in my entire life. So I have to thank you for that. And I'm definitely going to pick your brain some more off camera um, about what the, the whole rodeo thing is. You were telling me there's multiple disciplines in rodeo and it's not just, you know, hopping on the, the big, the big scary looking one and hanging on for dear life. There's different, you were saying there's different events in the different events, right? So what I did in, in, in rodeo, I, I rode bulls and I rode saddle broncs. In rodeo, we have what, there's two different ends of the arena. One end rides the buck and stock, as we call it. That's what I did. The other end are the timed events. They, they rope calves. They wrestle steers. It's totally different skill sets. Um, typically, those are bigger, stronger guys. I'm a smaller guy. I rode bulls and broncs. But the skill sets are very different all inside the sport. Just like you could take a wide receiver and compare him to a defensive tackle. They're both football players, but the roles they perform and their body types are quite different. That's fascinating. Now, I have heard from I've heard from several people that you know, given your background, given where you are and um, what you do, uh, you're quite a, a jeans and and a cowboy boots kind of guy. Is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, fair statement. So I, I typically, I always wear boots. Even when I got a suit on, I got a pair of boots on. It's just what I've always done, right? And, and after a while, I think people kind of expect that. If I showed up someplace in a pair of flat-soled shoes, people would say, what gives? That, that, that's not you. In fact, I typically wear my hat all the time, right? I don't have it on right now. I don't wear it into church. But typically, I wear my hat where I, even when I sit at my desk during the day, I typically have, my, I think better with it on. Wow. 
Okay, I think we've been disserved by not having a hat in this interview. I won't take that personally. Um, but next time, I, I don't want you at a, a desk. I hope that you could be at, a, at on the back of an animal for the interview. Um, but tell me about the types of clients that you work with, because that's such a fascinating you know, difference between many of the, the coaches that we have at our network that are suit and tie every day. Do you also work with this jeans and boots type of, of leader? Well, some of them might be, but um, certainly avocationally, um, I, I came from an agricultural background. The company that I worked at, a five, Fortune 500 company where I had most of my career, um, as soon as I left them, they became my first client. And I got some really good clients that way. And I still work with them today. And I have a couple of other agricultural companies. But that um, I haven't found myself exclusively in the ag business by any means. I, I, it's a spectrum of kind of people that I have coached. Um, leaders, Again, sometimes you might have a horse background and that intrigues them or they're intrigued about the rodeo image and that, that might attract them to me. But I would hope that the client sticks with me because first and foremost, I'm a good coach. I know that space. I know leadership. I can help them become better at what they want to get better at. And sometimes the faith factor is a part of that. One of my core values you'll see on my website, the first one is faith. Uh, and I think some people, while I'm not a spiritual director, we don't even talk religion per se, but they know they can, that's, that's a common denominator between the two of us. And I think that gives many of them comfort to know that we're dealing with from the same value based, value base around faith. So that often attracts the client to me that, they want to explore more. Um, tell us where we can find your website. We'll do this again later, but I want people to have a chance to just pop right on and see it. www.mccartneycoaching.com. In fact, I'm, I just re, I just redid my website, and it's definitely not your typical executive coach website. You'll see a lot. It's the Western theme throughout with some rodeo stuff. I like it. That's a good teaser for the site. So ladies and gentlemen, go check that out, mccartneycoaching.com. Uh, and we'll link that in the show notes as well. So you have a, a direct link. But um, So Mike, you were doing this rodeo clown work. Um, and at a certain point, you transitioned into coaching. What was it that caught your eye about leadership or about coaching that made you say, hey, you know, that might be something I want to be a part of? Yeah. So first of all, just a minor point, but I wasn't a rodeo clown. I wasn't a rodeo clown. That's all right. They saved my life. Okay. In fact, in the sport of rodeo, we didn't, there's a difference between a rodeo clown and a bullfighter. And typically the bullfighters are the ones literally distracting the bull. So the cowboy who's on the ground can get away to the fence. I have great respect for those guys. They saved my life many times. I was a rodeo cowboy. I was riding on the backs of the bulls. I was not on the ground trying to distract the bull from the rider. But but back to your question. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot what it was. That, that's my apologies for getting the, uh, the terminology incorrect. When you transition from being a rodeo athlete, not a clown, um, into coaching, uh, you know, there's quite a bit that took place between there that we'll unpack in a moment. But what was it that caught your eye or what was it that grabbed your attention about leadership or about coaching that started that gravitational pull 
towards where you are now. So as I worked in the corporate environment, what I enjoyed about my work most was the leadership part of it. And I think a lot of people would say that, right? Uh, it didn't really matter what the operation was. I just liked the leadership part of it. And I'm sure a lot of people can identify with this. Before you start coaching, you've been coaching a long time in doing it. In fact, when I, I in my early days in corporate America, coaching was a pejorative term. That's what you did for somebody who was on the on the ropes. And it was like a last remedial measure to try and save them. It was not viewed as um, an opportunity, uh, a resource to leverage a strength. It was like, how do we save this guy? Let's throw some coaching at him, right? But I began to think about what I enjoyed most about my job wasn't on the operations, the financials, just strategy side of the business at all. It was working with people, helping them get better, whatever it was they did. So when I realized I could actually make a living doing that, I've been following Marshall for quite a while and I'd read his stuff. I was a big fan. I'd heard him speak and I thought, gosh, um, rather than being an itinerant speaker or consultant traveling all around the country, uh, I can do a lot of this from my own home. And uh, at that time, I have seven children and we actually we had 10 at the time because I had just taken three more on through the court system. So I had 10 kids that called me dad. I was the sole provider and being at home at night had really high value. So I did not want to travel any more than I had to. And I realized I could do coaching from home. And I, that, that appealed to me. Wow. There's so much, so, so much to unpack there, Mike. Let's zoom in first on the, the family aspect, because I think this is something that our audience is very interested in. You have 10 kids. Tell me about that. Yeah, so seven seven children. Uh, but at the time, for about 10 years, we had 10 um, that we had taken three on, three in through the courts, um, functioning as foster children, you might say. But we had them in almost about 10 years. Yeah. So, um Again, I my first office was right in my bedroom, and that, that that was not very good because I never slept. I rolled out of bed. I was at my desk. I rolled out of my off of my computer. I rolled back into bed. It was a lot of long nights trying to make it go, and I had an opportunity to go back to the company that I left, and I almost did it just because of having all those kids, and I was tempted, but my pride said, nope, if I go back now, I don't want to look like I got my tail between my legs. So I resisted the urge and um, hung out my shingle and just kept working at it. By I'm grateful. Yeah, it, it worked out for me. I can think of 11 stakeholders that are probably very grateful for that decision as well, your wife included in there. Um, wow. Okay. So it sounds also like you've been doing this, um, let's say, remote coaching before it was cool. Um, it sounds like this has been part of your practice since the early days. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, the earliest days, I had a, a lot of local. Uh, I was I'm blessed with a deep, good network, and um, I I got calls. I got people. Again, the, the company that I left became my first client, and I got some really good high level clients from them right away to coach. So that really helped get me started, right? I learned a lot. 
uh, gave me credibility. And locally, I would get calls from other companies because of the influence of those people that I was coaching. So I was able to do a lot of it in person in the beginning. But that quickly began to change. And then I realized it can work well over the phone, too. And everything I'd learned and read about Marshall, about you can do this from anywhere. Don't let um, the phone or the Internet be an obstacle to coaching. In fact, it's not about you know how much time someone spends with a coach talking or being in person, but it's about are they following up? So I really, it really forced me to focus on that discipline, that step in the process. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, uh, when we speak with organizations who contact us about coaching, one of the things that I'll often mention is if you need coaches who are locally, you're going to be sourcing from a smaller talent pool, uh, which means you're going to have more fixed variables around the their background, their education, their experience, their pricing. Um, but if you are open to to coaching remotely through Zoom or through phone, you pull from a much larger uh, uh, pool of of potential with a much broader spectrum of of capabilities and competencies. So it's great that you you got a chance to do that at the outset. Um, and this this company you're speaking of, this was your work, uh, nearly three decades of work at at Anderson Inc. is what we're talking about. Yes, before your that that that's correct. That's correct. And even today, Brandon, I would say most of my coaching is done by phone or Zoom. I still do when I have clients that I can get to them in person uh, once a month. I will do that. Some request it. And rather than me trying to convince them that it's not important for us to meet face to face, I think, great. That's what you want. I'll give the customer what he wants. Um, and on the topic. Do you, as an expert coach, do you see a difference in the efficacy or potency of coaching in person versus on the phone? Well, th there are a few advantages that lend themselves to doing it in person. I'll, I'll give one right now, um, because when I am in person, I go to their facility, their plant, their headquarters, and sometimes it avails itself to me talking to some of their stakeholders very extemporaneously. I'm walking down the hall and here comes one of them. And all of a sudden I've got a great connection. They say, Mike, you got a minute? Can you step into my office? Sure. And sometimes they say, you know what? I, you know, I know I'm not your coach or you're not my coach, but I got something going on here. What do you think about this? Next thing I know in time, that guy becomes my client. So there's definitely advantages then to you. There's advantages to the company in terms of accessibility to you. Um, but in terms of the, let's say, the uh, impact of stakeholder-centered coaching, do you see a difference in the outcomes of clients that you're coaching on the phone? I don't. No. In fact, you know, when we do it by phone or by Zoom, I, again, I probably even do 50, 50 Zoom phone. We can stay very focused. Okay, and I, I, I work from, from my blueprint, what I want to cover in a conversation, certainly exploring what they have to cover. But one of the things I sell my clients in the very beginning, and I always pitch it, is efficiency. We drive waste out of the coaching process. So if you're doing your steps and I'm doing mine, it coaching can hit the mark in minutes. Now, I will give you unlimited time, okay, but but nobody pushes for more time, right? So we keep it very focused. And when I do that over the phone, it allows me to stay really focused. 
So I think you can even argue there might be better conversations when you do it phone or, or Zoom. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'll speculate, um, but this is nothing more than a hypothesis, um, it, is that the biggest advantage of doing it remotely is compliance. If you have to meet in person, that's quite a different uh, production, a different set of logistics, um, and different set of pressures on the leader to have someone show up into your office. Whereas if it's as simple as click sign on, you're there, you click sign off, you're done. Um, observationally, I see less cancellations, I see more showing up, um, but that doesn't necessarily speak to the actual outcomes, just to the the formative processes. So um, maybe it's a good time to tee up some research for this 2023 year. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, those of you at home who are stakeholder center coaching certified coaches, if you are interested in, uh, let's say, participating in or contributing to a study on the efficacy of stakeholder center coaching remote versus in person, send me an email podcast at mgscc.net. Uh, depending on the number of people interested to contribute, um, this may be a research project we can pursue and publish uh, this year. But let, let's come back to um, let's come back to you as a coach. So you did about 30 years, just under 30 years here at Anderson um, Inc. You did uh, a couple of years at American Health Group. Um, how did these roles prepare you for your work as a coach? Thank you. Those roles prepared me because I learned a lot about leadership. Um, um, truly, I got to work with some wonderful people. And just like in the business we're in now, you learn from the people around you, right? Iron sharpens iron. And the people around you help you become even better. Those jobs that I had before just um, put me in the uh, among some really good people where I learned a lot about leadership. That gave me credibility as a leader, especially in the beginning to get my first clients, right? Because I was respected by those people. I'd been at the same tables that they had been at, and that allowed me to win them over early on to become clients or recommend me to their clients. But I learned a lot about leadership. And I've just been a lifelong student of the subject. Uh, I just love it. Like most of us who are in the coaching business do. I, I read everything I can about it. I, I, I soak it up. I listen to the podcast. Uh, I went to the talks and I'm still learning. Well, what was your, your first introduction to, to Marshall Goldsmith as a thought leader? I can't remember the first time. Uh, I can remember the first time I heard him. I only heard him live once before I became a stakeholder centered coach, but I'd been, I would see his name in articles um di different publications training magazines or whatever um uh, and i just thought this guy sounds really practical he sounds so straightforward i already had begun to think there's a lot about leadership and management and coaching that's convoluted marshall just cut through all that it was so blatantly practical and understandable i just i was attracted to it so in the beginning, when I thought, if I'm going to hang out my shingle and be a full-time coach, I can't just say, I made up my own process. Because I'm going to be looking across the desk from some, even if my client doesn't care about that, the VP of HR or the CLO is going to ask me about that. And all I had to do was say, Marshall Goldsmith, Stakeholder Centered Coaching. And I was like, then they would jump and go, oh, I got his books. 
or I, I've been to the Sherm conference. I love Marshall. And all of a sudden now they become an advocate for me with my own client with a, at that time, a prospective client. So I think the credibility of the brand was a big deal. And that's why I knew I wanted to get trained in that methodology. I couldn't, a lot of people just have, I got my own style. I, okay, yes. I got my own process. Well, where's the efficacy? Where's the research? Does it work? How do you know? Marshall did the work. He knew. That's what sold me. Oh, it's so powerful to, to potential buyers as well. I mean, um, you know, anyone can do a research study. Research, having research at your back is not always the weapon that people think it is, but having third party and having peer review research uh, is something that makes our process so powerful. Um, I, I can just say there's at least five external studies I can think of offhand that used our process in one way or another that show uh, largely largely similar results for leaders who aren't having a coach, but leaders who are using the process themselves. And that's a 95% success rate. Coaches who are leaders who are getting coached with a coach using the process um, have a 100% success rate, but that's extremely biased from the studies that have been done because they've been done just with stakeholders and our coaches. The studies we've done of just the leaders without a coach who have just been taught the process and self-apply in a 12-month period it's astronomical. And those who learn the process and don't do it, it's a coin flip. You have no, you are, you are less than chance um, at being recognized and acknowledged as being more, um, more effective. But, you know, this is what we're doing with the community this year. We are looking to push more research um, to be more transparent. I think the net, the, the industry is too opaque. The studies are too biased. Um, and so finding that intersection point between academia and practitioners, where practitioners can get the academic training to do uh, uh, scientifically rigorous studies, and where our academics can learn the practical application so that they can go out and with good, uh, with good reliability, apply these principles in organizations, not as a coach and at an arm's distance, but to really extract what the real um, outcomes are uh, of the process. So this is, this is all what's, what's coming up this year, but let's get some quick stats on you, Mike, so that our, our audience knows where you're coming from. Um, how many years have you been coaching formally as a stakeholder center coach and how many stakeholder center coaching engagements have you had? I think I became a stakeholder centered coach in about 2010. Uh, and shortly thereafter I became a master coach. Again, I was just blessed with some really good prospects that became my clients that were high level influential people that wanted to get better. So um, I had a self-selected group in the very beginning to work with. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Um, so yeah, I probably have between 40 and 50 clients that I have worked with leaders. I have successfully coached. Um, I would say, uh, some are have been six months. In more recent years, that's almost become the standard. But in the beginning, they were usually a year, and one I had go four years. We set a we set a different goal, but yeah, yeah. So you're saying that you're seeing a trend towards six month engagements? Is that correct? I personally have. That's correct. Yeah, and, and because. Part of it, part of it may also just be my value proposition, which I think many people would 
many coaches will offer this, that number one, I don't bill until the end. And I tell them to think of this as a year journey, as a year investment. Whether you work with me or not, think of it as a year. However, um, we'll go, if you want to go by month by month, but I won't go any less than six months. So when they find out, geez, I can try this for six months, it's just, it's an easier yes for them. So I say, let's go for six months. Many of those have continued on for another six months, but some stopped at six months and we get good results. So that's where we stop. So you use six months as a lead in, hey, just come in, try this out. You don't build to the end anyway. And if you love it, we'll extend. So I typically will lead with a year. I typically talk about a year, but I said, I will also do six months. But no, I don't do less than six months. That's just me. I just don't do less than six months. Fascinating. Well, um, I know that our audience is deeply interested in, uh, let's, let's call it the, the hard things about hard things, um, to quote the book. Uh, and this is, you know, what are the rough edges of becoming a coach? And all of us had some major fears or hangups. Um, even some pretty big failures as we found our feet um, as a coach. And many of these started at home. Um, and I know you've got a pretty big family. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what the reaction from your family is as you're transitioning from this, this uh, long career at Anderson working at American Health Group and you tell your family, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and start becoming a coach. How did that conversation unfold? Now, that, that was pretty organic and pretty seamless because, um, um, again, uh, well, they were thrilled to death that I was going to, my office was going to be in the home and that I wouldn't be traveling a lot comparatively. So, so that was all good. Um, and I think my wife was just so supportive. And, you know, there, there's some discipline you have to instill on yourself when you're working from your home. But for me, the advantages were far outweighed any negatives. Um, but it was a little scary financially in the beginning. Oh, my gosh. Again, I, I was the sole provider in the family. I had all these mouths to feed and um, there, I was working without a net. Uh, I didn't have a spouse that worked. Right. And um, I, I thought... I, I got to bring home the bacon. So I did anything, right? If you called me up and say, do you strategic, do you, will you do strategic planning? I said, yes, before you finish the sentence. It's like, I'll do anything. I'll just, and then I'd hang up the phone. And go, okay, I got to figure this out. Who am I going to call? Yeah. Well, then the more you built up a credible track record, I could become a little bit more selective to the point where I don't do consulting. I, I got a couple of people that I would highly recommend you talk to. I'm a coach. Here's the kind of coaching that I do. Are you interested? That's really important. Uh, it's important to build that type of structure. And I, I do want to encourage our audience to, to be selective about those with whom you work. But also, as you mentioned, Mike, having a network of referrals. I mean, there's, there's no better way to help someone than by always being able to say yes, even if you're not the one who's, who's delivering that service. So, Brandon, early on, I knew I wanted to be, I wanted to be described this way, that Someone, if, if two people were talking about the prospects of using a coach, they'd say, well, if you're looking for this coach, if you're looking for this kind of coach, for this thing, here are some people. But if you're looking for a senior leader who really wants to get better and the stakes are high, there's only one guy you need to call. You got to talk to Mike McCartney. That's what I wanted. Okay. I don't know that I have that, 
but I've got evidence, so I've got some of that. So that's what I wanted. I didn't want to be a guy that could do five, 10, 15 different things. I wanted to, I wanted to do hone my craft so that people knew me for that. That is an excellent, excellent call to action for our audience. So ladies and gentlemen, those of you who are listening at home or tuning in on your drive to work, maybe at the gym, here's your decision point. As Mike just mentioned, it is an excellent uh, habit to get into to say exactly how do I want to be described before someone refers me. If you need this service, that's the person to call. I'm the person to call. There's nobody better in the world than this than me for this particular job. So that, I think, is a good good place to assign yourself some homework. How do you want to be described before someone passes uh, a, a prospect to you as a service provider? That'll make it very specific about what the value you're adding and the way that you need to invest in your own learning and development. Can I, I just want to add one thing there because the, uh, some you, you may smile at this, but, but I can remember we all deal with this in the beginning, the confidence to put out some kind of investment <clears throat> where people are going to buy it. Right. And, and yeah. So, and, and when you say, okay, here's my, here, here's what the investment level, if we're going to work together, some would react like, are you kidding me? I, oh my gosh, I've used, you know, and then I'd go, oh, I go, oh, you want one of those kind of coaches. Here's who you can call. I know it's a little bit, condescending, but, 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 but I, I, it, it was my way of communicating. I don't work for that. I know guys to do, but that's not me. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, one of the ways that I'll, I'll start a conversation. If a, if a corporation has called us and says, we want to, we want to work with you guys. I always say, well, you know, it's usually going to cost somewhere between a $7 book and a $70,000 coaching engagement sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, but we're going to use the rest of our time together to understand exactly which one, which service will be best for you. Um, and that's a good way to go. If you've got a book, if you've got an ebook, or if you have some low cost service, you actually get to position. It depends on how important leadership is to you. If it's worth a $7 book, we've got that. If this is a, a senior leader who you absolutely cannot afford to not get better, call Mike McCartney. Or go to McCartneyCoaching.com and see the new Rustic website. Either one. Uh, habits. Mike, what habits did you develop that helped you work from home? And I want to say this is very important for our audience because many of our stakeholders and our coaches uh, have this operational model. What habits have you developed that have been particularly helpful? I think, first of all, I, I one of my habits is I dress like I'm going to work every day. I'll be in a pair of jeans and boots, but I don't, I, this is just me. I, I don't go to, I, I don't sit at my desk in shorts or sweatpants. I, I, I want to put on my attire like I'm in front of somebody so that it just helps me enter that space, being a little bit more serious and intentional about what I'm doing that day. I think the other um, daily discipline of just doing my, daily planning. Uh, every day, you know, I take a look at what I got to do, how on track I am for the week, for the month, whatever. Yeah. And to have my own home office, to have an office where my wife, my kids might know, know that, that that's just dad's workspace. We couldn't get to him if he was away at an office. 
We don't get to him during the day unless he comes out or we need him for something important. <clears throat> but on that note, I want to I want to make one plug. I put this on my website. I got permission, but there's a one minute video called Habits. Actually, it's called Eight Second Ride by Price Pritchett. Are you familiar? Many of our listeners will be familiar with PricePritchett.com, but Price on my website, uh, it's probably under Executive Coaching. There is a sixty second video. Uh, made by Price Pritchett on habits. It's excellent. Price did it. It's excellent. But it just speaks to the practical benefit of developing good habits and how sometimes you just got to make the start. You got to push yourself into a habit before you even have made it a habit. That's so important. And I like the idea of dedicated space. You know, everyone can't do that. But if you can, to have that space that nobody goes into, my kids will stop. The door is open. They'll walk right up to it and they won't go in. They just know this is this is daddy's private working space. And I have windows on my door. So sometimes they'll sit there and, you know, mine are young. They'll sit there and breathe and, and do things to the, the glass while they wait for me. It's it's oh it's so lovely to have to be doing these interviews and and I usually have my blue healer at my feet. He's there every day with me. <laughs> Any other habits or routines that have been um, that really helped you make that transition into being you know this is we'll talk a bit about entrepreneurship but but moving from that you know fixed role into running your own company as a coach. Any other habits or routines? One of the habits for me is daily reading, daily business reading, coaching reading. So I just, I, I have it as a habit to be reading 15 minutes every day of an email or a book uh, uh, or listening to something that's helping me advance as a coach. So very content specific stuff for me as a coach. That's been a habit that served me well. That's great. I'm sure it serves your clients as well, huh? Yes. So I think we, we got to model what, you know, we talk all the time about modeling for our clients, good stakeholder-centered coaching. Well, that kind of self-development must be ongoing with us. And if my client said to me, Mike, what are you reading right now? And I said, oh, geez, uh, I, I don't know. Shame on me. I don't think anyone models that behavior quite as well as uh, Bill Zeeb who was one of the first interviews we did in this. Can't say enough about Bill Zeeb. The man is amazing. His enthusiasm is palpable all the way from Switzerland. Absolutely. He, uh, he's turned me on to um, cold, cold showers and ice baths has been a big thing. You know, just start off doing something that's painful that you don't want to do. And once that's out of the way, like I genuinely find as an entrepreneur Many of my other habits will fall uh, when I'm not routine on my ice baths. It just works like magic. Um, and the idea of reading is so important, you know, whether that's uh, coaching. And I'll offer one, one more little thing on the, on the idea of habit. Um, this hasn't been a new habit, but it's something I've integrated into my practice. And I put together a checklist. Um, I'll call it 
better said, really, my action plan as a coach. So that, in fact, I use, there, there are multiple ways I use that action plan. But one of the things I have in there in my action plan that is a habit daily, I never miss it, is to pray for my client's success. And I don't want to overplay that or, or put that out there and sound pretentious. But truly, if you are a person of a faith, of faith, or even if you're not, but to pray for your clients and the clients that I have greatly appreciate it appreciate that. Um, so I just try to be very intentional every day about praying for my clients. I think of them specifically, what their challenges are, what they need to do to get better, and pray that they have the humility, courage, and discipline to do it. Sure. I mean, even aside from the metaphysical, the potential metaphysical impact, there's got to be some some deep meaning in taking the time to think that deeply about the individuals you're working with, right? And I put that in the job descriptions of anybody that's ever worked for me. It's right down there. It's number nine, pray for our clients' success and well-being. There you go. Good. So so also, it sounds like one of the routines is ensuring your values are also transferred to those with whom you're working um, in the business, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important for me. That's been just a part of my daily discipline to make sure that I pray intentionally every day for my clients. And I tell them that. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, the, the side of becoming this coach entrepreneur, uh, especially in your position of coming out of an executive role. That's a, that's a big transition. How did that affect you personally? I think one of the hardest things to get used to for me was, um, just the loneliness of it in the beginning. I felt like the Lone Ranger without Tonto. Here I'm talking about teamwork and, you know, and here I am solo in my bedroom or up in my office above my garage working all by myself, right? And missing the interaction that sometimes would just erupt spontaneously in the halls of a company or in a meeting. And all of a sudden, before Zoom, it's like I was I was booking breakfast every week with people just to go out and see people. So that that took some getting used to just the the, the loneliness of being on my own as an independent contractor. Mm. And how did you how did you get used to that? What did you do? What proactive steps did you take to kind of ease into it? Well, I don't know that I got used to it, but but uh, again, I would just I would. I would create interaction. Uh, of course, I'm always prospecting. I'm always looking for. So sometimes I would just call people out of the blue, or book a breakfast or meet with former, uh, uh, yeah, previous clients, prospects, anything, just to make sure that I was getting that social need of mine met. It kind of went away. Once The other thing was when you leave corporate America, you leave your IT department behind. And all of a sudden, there I am standing in line at Verizon with my cell phone, like every everybody else, where once before I made a phone call and I had somebody down my office to fix it. Yeah, so that took a little getting used to. Oh, I'm sure. That's tough. You know, let's let's zoom in on that moment though. This is this is very, very valuable information. If you could rewind the tape with the, the technology, the connectivity that we have today. If you could rewind the tape to that first day when you're sitting there in your, your office feeling lonely, uh, where you're booking those breakfasts and such, what do you wish that you had 
that would have counteracted some of that loneliness? What could, how could that gap have been filled using what we have today? I think I would have gotten on the social, some of the social platforms or even LinkedIn earlier and become adept at it. Even today, I'm just because of my age and where I am in my career and I've developed the following and, uh, you know, an inflow, an influx of prospects. It's not as important for me as it once was. But finding new clients is every coach's biggest challenge when you go on your own. And all of a sudden, like, how do you get clients, right? And I think getting more proficient earlier, especially on LinkedIn, would have been really helpful. Well, I'll, I'll pose this question also to our audience because um, as you've heard in our Stakeholder Center Coaching uh, community meetings that are just for certified coaches, um, one of our big key focuses, the biggest key focus for 2023 is how we develop communities so that coaches have a place to belong. They have that social need filled. Um, and where we're trying to parse the need is uh, much of the expressed need centers around training, less about um, socialness. And what you just mentioned is, you know, once you're on your own, how do you get a client? That sounds like a training, uh, a training issue versus... You know, I wish that every day at nine o'clock a.m. there was a 30 minute social group where we just checked in our on our big tasks for the day and our wins of the week. You know what in the concrete, what would it look like if that problem was solved for you? You know, could that be a daily meeting? Could that be a would a, a simple forum be sufficient where, let's say, an accountability forums, unmoderated uh, coaches posting their goals, or is it a local group of coaches in the Midwest who are, you know, have a, a base touching? Is there anything specific that comes to mind? And ladies and gentlemen, again, podcast at mgscc.net. Tell us what your needs are as it centers around the lonely entrepreneurial road that we all march as as a coach. What is it for you, Mike? Yeah, um, Brandon, nothing's coming to mind right now. I'm just trying to think. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. It's okay. That's okay. Um, you know, if it comes to mind, let let me know because I want to solve this. That shouldn't be a barrier to becoming a coach. You know, there's so much about entrepreneurialism that is unknown. And like you said, it's scary. You go from a predictable, very comfortable income to variable and largely dependence on your ability to sell. But hey, I'm a I'm a people guy. I didn't like the operations and the finance and the sales and marketing. So how do you bridge that gap? My key curiosity is: is it through training? Is it through social uh, social gatherings? Is there something in between? Maybe a hybrid. Uh, again, Mike, let me know, or or those of you listening at home um, can let me know. But uh, let's come back to self doubt because I think this is a, a topic that we've discussed in a number of these interviews, um, and I just can't imagine there's much room for a rodeo athlete to experience self-doubt. Is that something that has ever gotten in the way of you as a coach? Yeah, thank you for asking that because um, I, I, just like in my rodeo days, there, there, there were times when I was scared to death to get on a certain bronc or a certain bull. But by the time you climb down into that buck and shoot, you better not be afraid anymore. And sometimes you fake it till you make it and you just do everything to tell your body you can do this, right? And you can win. You can be really good. So it is with coaching. And when I had those self-doubt mo moments, I was calling Frank Wagner and Chris Coffey all the time, sometimes 
more than once a day because I was in the middle of coaching some really high stakes senior level people that I didn't feel I had any room for error. And I, I, I then I'd go, oh, shoot, I mixed up that process. Ah, I forgot to do this. How do I, I, I can't go back to my client and say, you know, I'm just really green at this. And, and so I, Frank, Frank, Chris, what do I do? And they, they coached me through something. So I had a lot of self-doubt about that. But I think just like in rodeo, sometimes you have to push yourself through it. You know, it's like, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to find out. And I'm going to draw upon every fiber of experience and success I've ever had in my life and apply it to this situation. I'm going to push myself into it. And all of a sudden you found out I lived. It wasn't as bad as I thought it'd be. I can do this. Damn, I'm pretty good. Yeah, that's so that's so funny. And I love that line. I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to find out. I think that's such a, a key way to that's what confidence is. It's not knowing you can do it. It's being comfortable, not knowing if you can and being willing you to find out you can do it more than you. You're you were wrong more than you would be right when you question that. Right. It's like I did do that. I didn't think I could. I did it. And we know this, that often there's somebody who believes more in us than we believe in ourselves. And we work to get to that level because we don't want to let them down. And in the beginning, that was our moms and dads or our teachers or our coaches. And because of their expectations of us, we thought, I'm going to try. I, I don't think I can do it, but I'm not going to let them down. I'm going to do everything I can to do it. And then you did it and you go, hey, I can do that. In fact, I think that's what they call the Pygmalion effect. Well, the uh, Galatea effect. Galatea effect. Okay. No, that's that's... I like that. You will be wrong more often than you're right when you question whether or not you can do it. That's beautiful. And I think that's so true. Sometimes we truly, we can't just, we truly might think, I don't know if I can do this. Okay. You know what? Call people, whatever you got to do. But sometimes there's no failure in an option. You just got to do it. So you do it. And then you think, thank God I pushed myself through it. I am so glad I took the chance. Oh, yeah. Well, tell me about a time, Mike, if you would, um, where you questioned whether or not you'd be able to do it. And you surprised yourself with exactly what you were able or capable of doing. Um, I have a I had a client because it was a year. Um, he was the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. Uh, and he was ex he did not want anything to do with me. And um, he basically acquiesced to his boss the CEO's request, which was probably an order to use an executive coach. This guy was, the CFO was smart. He was confident uh, and he didn't want any part of me. And I thought, I'm over my head here. I'm over my head. Well, that's where I used Frank and Chris often. And they were so helpful. God rest Frank or Chris's soul. He's gone, but Frank's still around. And he will avail himself to any one of us. All we have to do is ask, write or email him, right? But but I did know if I could coach this guy successfully. His stakeholders did not like him, um, but I, I they were prescribed by virtue of being his direct reports and who his boss wanted to have as stakeholders. And I thought, I don't know if this is going to spell success. I don't know if I can win. We did. We did. Um so that was a big surprise. And I'm, I'm, and we stay in touch today. And I'm eternally grateful for his friendship. I won him over. He actually liked me by the time it was over. 
That's the best. When you look up the uh, the very steep cliff side of a particular engagement, and on the other side, you realize there's a, a partnership. Orphan. I'm so glad I did it because I, I really questioned whether I could handle it. I thought he was too smart. He was too confident. I was too inexperienced with SCC. And that was one of the things when I came back from stakeholder-centered coaching, I had my own process, but I thought, if I'm going to learn this, I got I to gotta stick with this. And I resisted the temptation to start watering it down with what I thought would work. And I stayed with the process and I fumbled a lot in the beginning, right? It was, it was new. It was different. I never worked with stakeholders before and, oh, so just, but I'm so grateful that uh, I stuck with it and learned the process. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Frank, for helping me do that. And all the other stakeholder-centered coaches that I would call. Oh, my gosh. This is a common theme um, that I've noticed in these interview mics is that in these interviews is that many of the top level coaches, when I say, what was it like getting started? They say it was scary. It was tough. Confidence is an issue. Um, but the theme is that they would contact Chris. They'd contact Frank. They'd contact our office to ask, um, hey, help me out with this. Like, I just I'm not sure how to proceed. Um, and we encourage everyone to do that. You know, the email for certified coaches you can find in your coach login. Um, but that's that's a key aspect. And, you know, something that we are both beneficiaries of is that our process is not knowledge dependent, right? You don't need to have a, an MBA to execute this process. Well, where many coaching methodologies require a great or to be effective, require a great deal, an expansive set of knowledge about leadership. Ours is a system. You use the system, you run the system as it's designed. And you get the outcomes that it's designed to produce, regardless of the individual doing it. Of course, we all have our own subject matter expertise. Um, and I do want to talk about that here in just a moment. But uh, let's talk about the highlights. You know, you've had this experience where you really surprised yourself way better success than you anticipated. Um, aside from that, what other big highlights have you had in your career as a coach? Things that just stuck with you. This was this was a highlight. Just really a memorable moment. Um, probably what three years ago, four years, three years ago, COVID's just settling in, and I had a. I was winding down with a couple of clients, and I had a couple more that were just ready to start. And all of a sudden, when the, when that cloud settled in, those clients, those client companies, all said, "We just got to put the brakes on everything here right now." And all of a sudden. I had no clients. And I thought, okay. And out of the blue, I get this call from this business owner in Kentucky who said, I have four people. He heard me speak like five years before this. And we just kind of loosely stayed in touch. I hadn't talked to him probably two years. <clears throat> and he said, I've got, I've got my four direct reports that I would like you to coach, but there's one deal. <clears throat> You got to come to Lexington to do it. I said, done. So he said, I don't want to do that virtual stuff. Zoom was just kind of coming in, you know, and he said, I don't want to do that stuff. I thought, what am I going to say? No, 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 you don't understand, uh, client. Uh, you don't have to, you can just, you don't have to meet with the guy. You can, I thought, you want it? I'm coming. So I drove once a month to Lexington, Kentucky. It was about a six hour drive, but I thought, I, I that was a highlight. And we had, I had great success with all four of them. 
And um, yeah, it was just, I, I will be eternally grateful for it. But I was just, it was such a highlight to get that call out of the blue from a guy I hadn't talked to who said, I got four clients for you. That's awesome. And he discovered you, you said, through a speaking engagement? I had a speaking engagement. He had, he had heard me speak probably five years before that. So I, again, I was just drawing on a network. I was blessed with a deep network and I'm so grateful for it. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about some of the aspects of the the job of being a coach that you've come to fall in love with the most. What are some of the enjoyable aspects of being a coach? It sounds trite, but really knowing that you're helping someone get better at something that matters, that, that, that has a cascading impact on many different lives to include often their spouses, um, <clears throat> their kids. I think one of the best compliments I, I get from clients occasionally is, would you meet with my son? Would you talk to my daughter? I think, oh my gosh. So I have, I have made that almost a staple offering, free will offering anytime. Any one of your family members, any one of your, anybody I can meet with that, that you think I can be helped, count me in. And it's mostly the local ones um, who will ask me if I would meet with a son, a daughter, a nephew, uh, a friend, you know, who's in college, getting out of college, in between work, midlife crisis, whatever. That's just a real compliment because I feel like I'm at, at a substantive level. That guy sees me as making a difference in his life to the point where he wants me to help somebody else. I, I'm I'm grateful for that. That's the part of coaching that, that just warms my heart and motivates me to get better at what I do. Sure, that's beautiful. So you're being a resource to your clients and the people that you're not actually coaching, but improving their lives. We know that Chris and Frank and many others have um, intentionally gone out of their way to help you. What other resources, these are people, what other resources, books, videos, articles, things like this, um, were also helpful to you along your journey of being a coach? I think there's two, um, well, the first I would say would just be the um, countless number of other people in this stakeholder-centered coaching network. They're, they're just, there's so many good people. I'd call them off and talk to them. But if I got academic, there's a couple of books that I think are just must-reads um, beyond Marshall's books, beyond Marshall's books, and beyond Frank and, and Chris's books. One would be the Leadership Challenge, you know, that um, Jim Coos is Barry Posner. But I think even better is the truth about leadership. The truth about leadership. It's almost more of a condensed version of the Leadership Challenge. That book has been immeasurably helpful to me. I use it all the time. I, I recommend it to my clients. Um, the truth about leadership and the leadership challenge, I'll say for right now, yeah. It'll come back as soon as we go to the next question. Yeah, well, and just to read everything you can with Marshall's articles, I think they are so good. In fact, here's what I do. That um, I am, after every time I do a, have a coaching session, I do a recap. I recap the conversation for a couple of reasons. Number one, I take better notes than I think most of my clients do. I'm good at that. And I know not only can I recap the conversation, but I have a pretty good sense of what I want to reinforce from my conversation. 
And I will often begin to embed in those recaps the articles, titles from Marshall's articles, like leadership is a contact sport. That's just a good one. And that will come back to me in their AARs. They'll write something like, one of the things that I've learned, leadership is a contact sport, you know, in quotes. I love it. Or um, the skill that changes everything, listening, something like that. One of Marshall's titles of his articles. So to read Marshall's articles, you will just find opportune times to have a client read those and or reference those. Th those are just those have been immeasurably helpful because they're short, they're practical. You sent a guy a six-page article out of the Harvard Business Review. It's like, ah, I don't have time for that. You give him a one-pager from Marshall, he can read it. We've been putting these up on the Knowledge Bank um, for quick, easy access, short URLs. That's that's uh, kb.mgscc.net. We'll take you to the Knowledge Bank where you'll find many of these articles. Um, and it's true. You know, the reason that you know, I'll say, Mike, I remember uh, back in my MBA days, I remember just pouring through textbooks, days, weeks, and months um, on um, leadership, management, human resources, uh, operation, uh, organizational development, all kinds of things. And then I would pick up something like the book Triggers. And I think, wow, these textbooks are almost perfectly distilled in this one day read right here. Like it's the same material, it's just told by a grandfather in very simple terms that, you know, you can, you can apply these now, this other like theory and the charts and everything. It's great knowledge. And if you're someone like me, you love that, but it's not nearly as, uh, it, you can't take it to market. So to say nearly as quick as some of these digestible pieces of content from Marshall. So leadership as a contact sport was a big one for you. Yes. And, and of course, Marshall's book. What got you here won't get you there. Thank you. Yeah, and that's the book I was trying to think of, just a must read. But even that title is really pithy because there's so much to be extrapolated from that, right? And I often will reference that title, that, you know, that title, there's so much to unpack for every one of you. Think about that. You know, what got you here, that's ain't going to get you there. That's why we're working on what we're working on. So I try to just... I try to really leverage the brand. And if they're new to it, all the more, I just want to underscore it, underscore it, underscore it by repetition, not ad nauseum, but in a meaningful way. So they can never say, I've never heard about that from Mike. No. Oh yeah. Mike always says that. Mike always references. They all know Frank Wagner and Chris Coffey vicariously through me. I like that. And I'm sure they do too. Um, you know, these, these, the, the materials that we're producing are very, very, they're designed to be easy to read, fast to implement and impactful in the end. Um, good. So again, if you want to check that out, kb.mgscc.net, you'll, you'll find many of those articles um, um, and things there. Uh, so Mike, I, I'd like to pivot now to, um, to reflecting back on the career that you've developed, uh, thinking about you know, the journey that you've gone on, the success that you've achieved, I think that there are a few better ways to pay that forward um, than to offer advice to people who are walking in your footsteps. So 
Um, I'd say if I'm a if I'm a brand new coach, I just walked out of a certification workshop. I have no idea what to do next. I have all the same um, fears that you had when you started. What advice would you give me? I, I'm going to repeat a couple of things because I think they're just that important. Just read everything you can on stakeholder centered coaching. Talk to everybody that you can on stakeholder centered coaching. Coaching. Absorb it. Em- just immerse yourself in the material on it and then do your best to practice it. And by that, I mean to try and model it. So um, think about as you're coaching uh, an executive, um, you're, you're talking about a goal, an action plan, and helping them making sure they follow up. We should be doing that ourselves. A little different, but what's what's your goal? My goal every time is to help my client strengthen his or her targeted skill so that it is recognized as better by the stakeholders. And I got an action plan for that. Okay. And and I will often adapt that, obviously, to to my, uh, because I will get some of that input early on from my my clients on what my action plan should be, but but I'm trying to just model for them. And that's part of learning the basics. If I'm applying that to myself, I can't help but help my clients apply the same basics. Learn the basics. Just learn the basics. Before you try and adjust it and adapt it and discount stuff, just follow the process. I can't emphasize that enough. That's that's what gets the job done is the basics. All the fancy, frilly, theoretical things are great, but they just they're ineffective without the actual basics being being done effectively. Um, if I was an organization and I were to call you up and I'd say, Mike, you know, we've got some leadership challenges. We're not sure what to do about it. Is this something you think you can help us with? You know, or I should change that. Um, what advice do you have for us to uncover what those leadership issues are and what's your advice for fixing them? What would you say to that client? Well, the first thing I would do is just start asking some questions. Chris Coffey was a master at asking good questions and you begin to unearth information that will inform what your next question was, right? So that before I ever recommend anything, I am finding out as much as I can about that client or that prospective client company so that I can offer a few things. And then if you could offer something substantive, that kind of reveals like, oh, if you'd hire me, this is what you're going to get. So you kind of give away something, something kind of free that they can just go, wow, that was really helpful. I can go do that. Even if I never talk to you again, that was, I left this conversation with something meaningful. I think that's a good focus. So what would you give? I mean, is that something that you do now is give what do you give that is substantive to a prospect who asked that question? Yeah, so often I'll be talking to somebody who, who might have used a coach or never used a coach, could be anything, but they, they think they want to use a coach. So I'll start asking about, uh, have they ever used a coach before? How did, did you like it? What did you like? You learn a lot there. And almost always, they never had stakeholders. So that becomes a pivot point. So we talk about, whether you use me or not, I just suggest that you enlist the, the people who are close to that leader because they become the real coaches. 
and anybody that's listening to this knows I'm just repeating the process, what Marshall, Frank, and Chris have always said about it. Any one of us say about it, but that's the key. That's why literally in our name, stakeholder-centered coaching, it's in the middle. Everything hinges on the stakeholder. And if you're not using stakeholders, the leader's probably not getting better. So my, my suggestion to the person or the company or the individual is make sure you're using stakeholders. I'll tell you how to do it. I, I'll, I'll help you do it. You don't even have to pay me. I'll just give you some guidance here, but it's that important. And they go, oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Or go read about it. Here's a whole, you'll find a ton out there on Marshall. It's such a good answer. And you know, what got you here won't get you there is that. If you want to know what the behaviors are and how to fix it, yes, what got you here won't get you there. People that got skin in the game. Buy the book, assign to someone to read it, and then implement it. But I'll tell you from our, our practical experience, it doesn't work. You need to have, or at least in large organizations, uh, I should say in almost any organization, you need to have someone who knows what they're doing and executing that process. It's as simple as getting certified. It's also as simple as reading some of these books and piecing it together yourself. But what you really pay for with a coach is you're not going to make the mistakes that many self-implementers will. You're going to save yourself a ton of time and you save yourself the time on troubleshooting. What do you do when a stakeholder moves to a different team? What do you do if the, the leader gets a promotion and now they're running a different project? You know, these are the uh, operational things that you really do need an experienced coach to work on. Um, so you, you said one of the questions you'll, <clears throat> you shared some of the questions that you'll ask. Um, are there any other important questions that you'll ask an organization before you're working with them? I like to, I like to always to ask, have you ever used a coach before? Do you have any experience with coaches? Did, did you have a, a, a peer, a colleague, another company, a friend who's used a coach? What was the experience? <clears throat> did they get any better? How did you know? What did you like? What didn't you like? Yeah. And sometimes by, by, by the context of the company, or the individual, you get a sense whether or not they're looking for a $200 a month life coach or they're really serious about working with the CEO of a company. And I was going to say a big company, but I've had small companies, right? I mean, that, that yeah, you, you just, and I've had big companies that thought I was crazy for what I charged, right? So, I mean, it, it's all over the place, yeah. But um your question was, um, what questions why? I just like to know if you used to go, oh, here's one. Now, this is going back to, um, I learned so much this way. It's really an exercise I give them, but there's a question that goes with it. And it comes from Jim Cousins and Barry Posner's book, um, The Truth About Leadership. And the question is this, what do you stand for? What do you stand for? It begs for, what are your core values? Okay, I want five to seven at the most, and I want descriptions of what those mean to you and why you chose those, okay? Why they're meaningful to you, all right? So I created a deck of cards. When I first did this, it was a pen to paper exercise 25 years ago. I created a deck of cards. <clears throat> I've, I just found there's something magical almost about sorting through a deck of cards in piles, most somewhat important, not as important, versus doing it on a keyboard 
or a, a pen to paper, a deck of cards. And then when you're done, give it to somebody else. Give it to everybody on your team. Here's a couple more decks. And what I learned from that is guys are telling me, even before they ever become my clients, these are my core values. And the reason I chose this word is because I had a high school coach and he always talked about that word. Or I had an uncle and he had that hanging up in his garage. And here's, that's why I choose it. Oh, oh my gosh, I learned a ton. Here's one more question I'd like to ask. What was a formative time in your life? What did you learn from it? Okay. Now, that sounds a bit trite. So you got to ask it in the right context because if you ask that question cold, if somebody's like, whoa, I, I'm not going there with you, right? But in the right situation, you learn, I mean, I've had people tell, here's just a couple of examples that come to mind. Um, my mom and dad got divorced or separated when I was a kid. Or I had a twin brother that died in a swimming accident. People around him are thinking, I've known this guy for 30 years. I never knew he had a twin brother that died in a swimming accident. So when I ask them that question, I learned a ton. And it takes copious notes and I draw on that. Just like you do those core values. I will come back at some point in my coaching of them and I will say, um, Brandon, one of the things you told me was X. How does that apply right now? Oh, like, whoa, he remembered that, right? And I review that stuff often. So I know all that about my clients because there'll be a time when it'll just, the opportunity will come up just impromptu. I'll be able to draw from some of that background that they provided me. And, and insert it into the conversation where it's meaningful and aptly applied. That, that, so I like to ask that question. What has been a formative time in your life? What did you learn from it? Who was involved, right? Oh my gosh. That's excellent. And I have, uh, I have a follow-up question. Um, Mike, what was a formative time in your life where you learned something valuable? And how do you apply that in your coaching? I have many. I, I, I'm just trying to, for the context here, um, I think one of the most formative times in my life was being married for seven years and not having children. And my wife and I wanted children in the worst way. We wanted a family. That's why I kept rodeoing, because I said I'd quit when the kids came. Well, they never came. <clears throat> so um, I learned a lot about sacrifice, uh, being unselfish, uh, focusing on my wife, uh, thinking about the blessings that I have instead of what I don't have. Well, fast forward, um, I, have, I had seven children. The first one came by way of adoption and then six more birth children followed. And I'm trying to find out who was still praying so they could blow out the candles and stop the novenas. Like, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. But I learned a lot about self-sacrifice during that time and that sometimes there's nothing guaranteed. I mean, we just thought we'd get married and have kids and everybody has kids, right? Well, it wasn't happening. Yeah. So um, that had big implications. I'm from a large family. My wife, my wife is one of 14. I'm one of nine. Uh, we just thought, oh, my gosh. And when when we weren't having kids, that was really, really difficult. It affected my whole identity. 
but I'm grateful for that time. Yeah, I'm grateful. It drew me so much closer to my wife. Both of us would say that. Uh, how how did this shape your your values? You mentioned one of your values is is faith. What other what other key values are on your list? Well, I think that's one of them. I mean, that would be my operative one, right? And that's why it's first my faith. I mean, my faith in God, my faith in my wife, my faith in my family, my faith in a bigger picture that there's something beyond just this. And someday I'll appreciate it. I don't right now. I don't see why this is serving any great purpose. I just want to have kids. But um, so faith in that not everything is visible or evident to us in the moment. And in faith in that eventually um, good things come. Good things come to the, we, we reap what we sow. And um, I, I, I learned that, yeah, over time. But, but um, that would be the operative one for me. Just it, it strengthened my faith in people and my God. That's beautiful. Uh, thinking back on this deck of cards, is this something that people could go to Amazon and purchase? Is this something that you print off? And Yeah, they probably are because uh, it's not a very um, profound idea to turn a bunch of values into a deck of cards. But <clears throat> I just I had the idea and, and maybe I'd even seen it somewhere, but I just developed my own. I just put together a list of I chose 40 values. And I put one in each card. And um, yeah, um, I, I should put something on my website for coaches that they can share that. You and I can talk about doing that. But I'd be glad any of my ideas, it'd be hard to even claim in those mine because I probably heard about them or was inspired by somebody around me. But that, that deck of cards has been such an effective recruiting tool because I give a client or even a prospect something meaningful in a first meeting. And it's just, it, there's so many ways it can be useful for, for in the beginning. Yeah. It's just become a staple of my coaching. I use it all the time. Is this something that you have professionally printed or something that you. you I did. I, I had them made up. So in the beginning, I, I think I made my own. They didn't look too good, but now I have them made up just like a real deck of cards, the right size or professional. It's really well done. In fact, I'll send you a deck. Yeah, I'll tell you what, if, if it would be great if we created a similar resource for stakeholder center coaches to use with their clients, because I think it's... Oh, I think that's a great idea. And, and I credit Jim Cousins and Frank knows this because I really got the idea. And I drive people, I say, get this book, The Truth About Leadership, because there's a whole chapter in there why these values are important. Oh my gosh, it's so relevant to the work that we do. Thank you, Jim Cousins. I'll send them to you, Brandon. Yeah, please do that. And we will um, we will get them in some version or some format to our coaches. Um, I imagine, uh, you know, I'll pass them to the design team, but I imagine at minimum uh, something that you could cut out, print and cut out at home for yourself. At best, have them professionally printed. Oh, you, you could do, there, there's all kinds of ways and somebody have a better idea. But the thing that makes it so helpful too is that it's very non-intruding. I can give you this deck of cards and I always book my second in my second appointment because I say, look at you do this exercise and uh, I'll follow up with you in a week or two and I'll share my answers. And I'd like to hear yours. It always leads to the next one. In the meantime, you might want to share this with a couple other people at work, your team, your wife, your kid. Here's an extra deck. It's been so effective. And then what you learn from it. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. 
do you include, you know, uh, let's say a business card within those cards or, you know, that's printed and cut just like this? Yeah, I'll see, you'll, you'll see when you get it from me. And I got a little instruction in there how to do it. Oh, I'm, I'm very eager to have that, Mike. And I think our listeners will enjoy that too. So um, good. I have, uh, I, I'm going to ask you one more question in, in a moment, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you now, give you a moment to think about it. In stakeholder center coaching, one of the critical tools we have is a, a list for leaders of do's and don'ts. You know, don't, um, don't fake your way through this. Do it with genuinity. Um, you know, it's just very simple um, creeds that you can live by as you execute each uh, stage of the stakeholder center coaching process. Um, if you were to prescribe a do or a don't list to coaches, what is one or two things that you might include on that list? If you were to create a do's and don't list for coaches uh, in their own successful career development, what would be on that list? So have a think about that. And to uh, our audience today, um, we're nearing the top of our time. And I want to invite you to join the conversation, this one and the next ones that we have. So if there is a question that you'd like to ask, or if there is a coach you'd like to have interviewed or even a leader you'd like to have interviewed, drop us a line, podcast at mgscc.net. And to Mike's point, he says, master the fundamentals first, understand the foundations and get very good at it. So if you are interested in learning more about stakeholder center coaching and you want to nail the foundations, we have a course that comes at no cost to you. You can get it at mgscc.net forward slash sample course, all one word, mgscc.net forward slash sample course. And this is the foundations of stakeholder center coaching. It goes through what we've talked about with courage, humility, and discipline. It goes through cases where stakeholder center coaching and executive coaching in general will not work. Um, and it's the founding principles of our coaching methodology at no cost to you. So with that, Mike, do's and do nots. What would be on your list of what you'd prescribe to coaches? Well, um, outside of the normal process, I, I mean, because that's pretty dictated to us already, right? I mean, the steps uh, uh, of the model, I, I would say create your own action plan. As a coach, review it, have a checklist, uh, model what you expect from them, put that together. And those expectate, excuse me, my action plan is built from the expectations of my client. Because in the very beginning, I am asking them, what do you expect of a coach? And they'll tell you something. I try to capture their words. That will go into my action plan. And then periodically, I will refer to that action plan. Not every, every, every other week or every month, but every couple months, I might say, let me just, any feedback for me as coach? Oh, oh, no, Mike, you're doing, I, I'll say thank you. Thank you. But let me just reference a few things from my action plan, things that you gave me in the beginning. Have you noticed a difference with me doing this? Have you noticed a difference with me doing that? And I get great feedback that way. And I'll say, see, you know what we just did? That's exactly what you got to be doing with your stakeholders. Now, I just benefited from that. And I, and I'm, and I'll let them know that. Thank you. I try to model the process, right? Thank you. And I learned that question from Chris Coffey. Have you noticed a difference? Because when you follow up, it begs for an observation of behavior, not an emotional reaction. 
So that'd be one of my things, create an action plan and periodically follow up with your clients for feedback and feed forward based on your action plan. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that, Mike. Thank you for being here as well. This is wonderful to finally get a chance to sit down and have this conversation with you. Um, before we say goodbye, how can our audience get in touch with you? How can they follow you? Where can they find you? Brandon, thank you so much for what you're doing for stakeholder-centered coaching. It promises a bright future for all in the SCC community. I'm so grateful and admiring you for doing this. Um, my website is McCartneyCoaching.com, McCartneyCoaching.com. All my contact info is in there. And if anybody wants to reach out at any point uh, with any feedback for me or suggestions for me or any ways I can help them, I stand ready. Thank you so much for that, Mike. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Mike McCartney, you can find him at McCartneyCoaching.com. This show is produced by Stakeholder Center Coaching, where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Join us next week for another episode of Conversations with Coaches.